didn't. Now it should be on. Anyway, we should not be standing still. We should always be moving forward. And uh, I think that we're moving into the next phase of God's work and plan for his in-kind church. It appears that a lot of the preparation has been done, and it shouldn't be too long until we see a great movement forward. And as I see little things happening that seem to lead to that, it's very encouraging to watch and to feel and to experience and to know that uh, we are on the right track and that God is adding one more piece of the puzzle and another piece of the puzzle and the picture is getting clearer the further we go. <coughs> well, let's go to Genesis again. Uh, we left off at the end of chapter 26 last time and I want to pick it up again. We were here in the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, the animosity that was between them and Jacob being the heel grabber uh, when he, as soon as he was born because of the war that had gone on in their mother's womb. It continued as soon as they were born. And heel grabber or supplanter is one who is able to stop where you are walking. If you have something around your heel, it's, far, it's hard to go anywhere, hard to accomplish anything. And Jacob grabbed him by the heel. So the path that Esau might have chosen for himself, uh, Jacob would be there throughout his life to stop him from doing what he wanted to do and for Jacob to take the lead. And God had told their mother that indeed Jacob would be the leader over his older brother, even though they were only born a few minutes apart. That's the way the system, would, the situation would work out. And as we saw, it began to work that way. And Esau became a very bitter man. <clears throat> and in the last two verses of chapter 26, took a wife that he knew was a grief to the mind of Isaac and to Rebekah. So he was acting in vengeance, in spite, and out of jealousy, and even whom he married. I don't know that that would have been where he would have wanted to marry otherwise, but he was so full of hatred that he did it on purpose. So let's pick it up then in chapter 27. And it came to pass that when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Behold, here am I. Now remember it said before that uh, Esau was the favorite of his father, yet Jacob was the favorite of the mother. And this will continue to play out. And even though Isaac knew that the birthright had been given, or been stolen, really, by Jacob from Esau, it didn't change Isaac's view of his sons and the one that he emotionally loved the most and was a man more similar to him, perhaps, in his outlook on life in some respects. <clears throat> so he wanted to give a blessing to Esau. 
So he called him, and Esau said, Here am I. And he said, Behold now, I am old. I know not the day of my death. He knew it was drawing near, but he didn't know which day it would be, so he wanted to fulfill a purpose here. He said, Now therefore take, I pray you, your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the fields and hunt me some venison. And make me savory meat such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So he, wanted, he loved the venison, and he loved the way that Esau prepared it and spiced it, and he wanted to enjoy that of the hand of his favorite son and then give him a blessing. So the whole purpose here ended up in a blessing for Esau as Isaac saw the situation. Rebekah heard Isaac speak to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and to bring it. And Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Behold, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me venison and make me savory meat, that I may eat and bless you before the Lord, before my death. She began to interfere. Now, Isaac was her husband, and she should have honored Isaac, and yet she had her own agenda, her own axe to grind, because she liked Jacob better. Now, was it her job to take over and to do this? Now, God had said the way it would happen, <clears throat> and that Jacob would indeed be the forefront son. But did she need to lie and cheat and defraud Esau because of her feeling for one son? The chicanery here, if you consider true Christianity, is clearly wrong. Now, God had intended it for it to happen, Jacob being the lead son, but could God have worked that out? I think he could have. Now, he may have allowed it to go on this way, knowing human nature and knowing Rebecca, knowing Jacob, and the character that they had, or lack thereof in this case, so he allowed it to happen and worked it out. But had they been of high character, not made mistakes, could God have made it happen anyway? I, could, I think so. Anyway, this is the way the story came down. Verse 8, Now therefore, my son, <clears throat> obey my voice according to that which I command you. Mom's in charge here of her favorite son. Go now to the flock and fetch me from there two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for your father such as he loves. Goat and deer are both uh, a lean meat, and you can change them considerably through spices, and she knew which spices that uh, Esau tended to use, so she could make the goat taste just like the venison. And you shall bring it to your father that he may eat, and that he may bless you before his death. Her concern, obviously, was the blessing, not necessarily Isaac getting what he wanted to eat. I mean, over a meal, you wouldn't go this far, but the bottom line, obviously, was the blessing. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. And he knew that the father, being deaf, almost deaf, and blind at this point, <clears throat> used the sense of touch to determine which son 
he was dealing with. Esau must have been a really hairy man uh, as, as we read the story. My father perhaps will feel me, and I shall seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. If I say I'm Esau and I bring him venison and he touches me, then he's going to curse me and cuss me out for lying to him. Did he know what the stakes were here? And his mother said to him, Upon me be your curse, my son. That's a dangerous thing to say in itself. Only obey my voice and go fetch me then. I'm going to take the responsibility. Don't you worry about it. If there's any curse, let it be on me. Uh, she did show a willingness to put her son ahead of herself, but she wasn't going to put him ahead of the other son. <clears throat> and he went and fetched and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory meat such as his father loved. Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son. Uh, that was because of the scent and the smell, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, and she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. I knew that, Jake, that Isaac would touch his hands and maybe put his hand on his neck. So a young kid is just covered with hair. So Esau must have had a bunch of it. And she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Absolute, outright, blatant lie. I have done according as you bade me. Arise, I pray you. Sit and eat of my venison, that your soul may bless me. So he lied and then asked for the blessing. And Isaac said to his son, How is it you have found it so quickly, my son? I just sent you. How did you get a deer and bring it back and get it prepared this quickly? So Isaac's a little unsettled here. It, it, things aren't quite right to him. And Isaac said to Jacob, Come here, I pray you. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done according as you bade me. Arise, I pray you, and eat it, and bless me. And Isaac said to his son, How is it you have found it so quickly? And he said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Now, God hadn't brought it at all. He'd gone into the herds and killed it himself. So another outright lie. And even using God is his excuse. This is getting pretty deep here. God did it. And Isaac said to Jacob, Come near, I pray you, <clears throat> that I may feel you, my son, whether you be my very son Esau or not. So, uh, still questioning. And Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He didn't trust his ears or his eyes as much as he did the sense of feel at that point because his, his ears, his eyes, he learned he couldn't trust. So the voice didn't sound quite right, but the hair is what did it. And he said, Are you my very son Esau? Ask him again. 
And he said, I am Esau. And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless you. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Uh, and his father Isaac said to him, Come near now, and kiss me, my son. Or maybe he brought him the wine to eat with the meat, <laughs> and partly to further dull his senses, I don't know. His father Isaac said to him, Come here now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Eternal has blessed. So he trusted his nose and his feel. Jacob stayed at the house a lot, and Esau was out of the field a lot. The smell of the field was a good smell to Isaac. He liked that. So when I come in smelling of the cow or the goat lot, my wife should like that, I guess. But it doesn't work that way, it seems. <coughs> but he liked the country smells better than he liked the, the, the house smells. So he gave him a blessing. He says, Therefore, God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. So the blessing was of plenty of moisture for his animals that the grass might grow. The fatness of the earth, all the good things of the earth. And plenty of corn and wine where some of the finest growing areas in the world, the American center of the country, one of the most fertile, richest, best places to grow crops that there is. The Napa Valley has overtaken France and others as the wine-growing center of the earth, really. And though it took a while, they have wines as good as those that come from anywhere else. Well, this nation truly has been blessed. It's the land of Israel. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. <clears throat> now, these blessings were not all just for that day. As we'll see in Genesis 48 and 49, and other places, of course, those blessings were to be, once they had become as the sands of the sea, and as the stars of the heavens is when those blessings would take the fullest effect. So this is not just on him as a boy or as a man, but upon his seed forevermore, that these blessings would come. That's why we should be able to look around, if we are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and look at where we are and say, this must be the blessing that God gave to Abraham, confirmed in Isaac, and later confirmed in Jacob. He reiterated these promises over and over to those three men. And it was nearly always in the context of when you become as the sand of the sea. So the latter days, clearly, are what those blessings were to depict and to signify. So today, now that Israel is as the sands of the sea, as we look around, 
wherever we see the good things of the earth, the dew of heaven, of great corn and wine harvests, it should tell us where the promised land is. Do you see any of that in the Middle East? Again, I come back to that question because these are prophecies of the future. So let's examine a little bit more of this blessing. Let people serve you, and now nations bow down to you. Look at the configuration of the countries of the world today. And what do you see? Where is the leading nation of the earth? Which one? have people bowed down to, wanted to go to, desired to be a part of, and to become a part of what dream? The Chinese dream? The Russian dream? No, it's the American dream that the world has longed for. Now that's quickly receding and going away. But that's because of our disobedience. But this is the place that nations have bowed down to. Be Lord over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. So we should find, if we were to find Jacob's people today, one that others have bowed before, or made uh, room for, be Lord over your brethren, be the leader, be the ruler. And let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone that curses you, and blessed be he that blesses you. America has done more to bless or to curse nations on this earth than anyone else here in the end time. We can either send foreign aid, we can send help, we can have a good trade relationship with, a good political relationship with, or we can rain, hail, and fire from above upon them, depending on the whims of our imagination. So we have held the fate of the world, in that sense, in our hands, and dropped blessing or cursing wherever we desired. Now, these blessings were to come essentially through Joseph, Jacob, then Joseph, who would be, remember the dream, we'll get to that, where the other brothers would bow down to Joseph. Well, who's been the leader in this end time? This nation, and secondarily, uh, Britain. The others have all looked to for leadership. But here in the last 40, 50, 60 years, 70, 80 years, really, or more, it has been this land. It is this land that saved Manasseh's bacon in the first war and the second war. We won't be around to save anybody in the third one. Verse 30, <clears throat> it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau's brother came in from his hunting, and he also had made savory meat, and brought it to his father, and said to his father, Let my father arise, and eat of his son's venison, that your soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, 
your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Imagine his emotional state, knowing, coming to realize he had been terribly deceived. And that which he had so desperately wished to do had been turned around and taken away. Who? Where is he that has taken venison and brought it me, and I have eaten all before you came, and have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Now he knew that God would back the blessing. These people were in contact with God. They knew God. They were the fathers of the faithful. Now, there was a lot of human nature and chicanery still involved in their lives, but they knew God. Now, is it any different, really, than what we are experiencing this very day? We know that we are of God, as John says. We read that, I think, a couple weeks ago. Those who listen to us are also of God. But if they don't hear us, they're not of God. We know that we are the chosen out of this world, those that God has set aside and sanctified. We know we are the people of God. We pray to the true God, not to the devil that most people pray to. We know the truth, and we worship in spirit and in truth. So we are the true spiritual Jews on this earth today. And I'm not speaking just of this group. I'm speaking of all the called out of God, wherever they may be in whatever organization, out of the splintering of world life, are the people God has chosen to work through. We know we are of God. And yet don't we still deal with jealousies and envy and favoritism and our own carnal appetites and human nature and all the things that comprise human beings. Now, these people weren't perfect either. So I, I think really there ought to be a lot of encouragement in this. It isn't that these people weren't the people of God, they were. And yet they made a lot of mistakes and they didn't do things right. They didn't always keep God's commandments. Now, we shouldn't use that as an excuse and say, well, those are the people of God, and they, they goofed up and got away with it, therefore I can goof up and get away with it. That isn't the way we should think. The way we should think is, these people were chosen of God, their overall lives went with God, and yet they still had their problems, their weaknesses and their difficulties, and take encouragement that God's mercy endures forever, and that he doesn't wipe us out because we still have our faults and our problems. We can still be working on them. So I find it very encouraging that these people could still have some pretty serious faults, and yet God would still work with them, because every one of us here has faults, and yet God is working with us. We have the same opportunity they did. 
We do not need to put ourselves down beyond a certain point. Yes, we need to be humble and get rid of our vanity and our ego, and yet at the same time recognize that God can take weak, base people and make something of them. And he can use them in spite of themselves. Not because of themselves, but in spite of themselves. And that's the way he uses you and me. So if people point out our problems, yes, we have them. But we should not be discouraged by that. Paul made that very clear. We might be distressed, we might be perplexed, we might have all kinds of problems, and yet we are not depressed and put down and stop working and stop trying because we have problems. So they had to work through these things. Imagine Esau walking in after the birthright deal and the pot of soup and selling it so cheaply to suddenly understand Jacob had grabbed his heel and stopped him again. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. And said to his father, Bless me, even me also, father. He felt completely shut out, alone, unfavored, unloved, unwanted, unneeded, superfluous. And he said, Your brother came with subtlety and has taken away your blessing. What else could he say? And he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. Jacob means supplanter. I will do what I can to supplant you, to take you away from what is rightfully yours and take it for myself. Jacob, as a young man, was a selfish man. Esau recognized it. He took away my birthright, and, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Didn't you save something back for me? Of course, Isaac had thought that it was Esau, so he hadn't held back. He gave him all the blessings. And Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him your lord. I made him the leader, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. All the others would serve Jacob. That's a big deal, isn't it? And a lot of families have a lot of competition within them as to who will be the leader, who will get the blessing. And there's a lot of put-down in families. People try to get the advantage and the leverage. And these were some pretty big stakes here that would go down through a thousand generations, as it says in Psalm 105 and 6. I've, all his brethren I've given to him for servants, and with corn and wine have I sustained him. What shall I do now to you, my son? I've given him among the social, the political world, leadership over you, 
And I've also given him the physical blessings. What else is there? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He said, If I could just have one blessing. And then he began sobbing, probably shaking violently and crying very bitterly over what had just happened. And Isaac, his father, answered him. I suppose while Esau was crying his heart out, crying his eyes out, and that may have lasted for some time, some minutes, because it takes a while when you're really upset to just cry it out, to get it out of your system. Esau was never able to get it out of his system, but he did have a big crying tag there, I'm sure. And all the time, Isaac's watching his son as he cries from the depths of absolute, total defeat and bitterness and frustration. And his heart must have gone out to it. And he felt how his favorite son truly hurt over the favoritism, the lying, the chicanery. And I'm sure it went through his mind that his own wife, Rebecca, had betrayed him and that his other son, Jacob had betrayed him as the father. I don't know whether he knew at this point Rebecca's involvement or not, but I'm sure he found out. And I'm sure he knew, as old as these boys were, how his wife felt toward Jacob and how he felt toward Esau. These family divisions were very, very deep. And the feelings were very deep. So I'm sure he suspected a ratess involved. That's the female of a rat, I guess. So he answered after he thought it over and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. He said, I'm also going to place you in a good area. The dew of heaven will be given to you. And by your sword shall you live. Now, is that a blessing? You'll be a man of war. Your people will always be at war. Yes, you'll have some physical blessings, but you'll always have trouble. And shall serve your brother. So I've already blessed him with that. This is kind of a backhanded <laughs> blessing here in a lot of respects. I mean, imagine Isaac, he's sitting there trying to figure out, what can I say to Esau? How can I make him feel better? He says, you're, you're going to serve your brother. He'll always have the power over you. And it shall come to pass, when you shall have the dominion, there is going to be a point sometime down in the future when you will have dominion over your brother Jacob that you shall break his yoke from off your neck. So he said, through history, Jacob will be the lead boy. But there will come a time when that dominion will be broken, and you will break his yoke off your neck. Now, if you go back and read uh, the book of Obadiah, 
It talks about this battle that would go on. Maybe we should go back there and review that for a few moments to see how this will play out and is today playing out. Now you'll remember the series we did on the Minor Prophets and how it shows chapter by chapter, book by book, how things would turn out in the future. Now remember, Esau is Edom. Scripture states that very clearly. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the eternal God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the eternal, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise you, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the heathen. You are greatly despised. Now we have come to recognize uh, from history that Esau, or Edom, converted to Judaism, uh, the 13th tribe book, I, I'll, I'll say the author's name in a minute, it'll come, uh, Kessler, wrote the book, The 13th Tribe, about Esau. Jacob was to have sons, 12, and Esau would become the 13th tribe, as Kessler put it. But the Khazars around the Caspian Sea converted to Judaism, and they were children of Edom or Esau. So they didn't really change their lives. They just took on the name of Jews. And we know that the Jews have been hated, and some of those were Edomite Jews, not just true Jews. Herod himself was half Edomite, and Christ called him a fox because Edomites were known as foxes. So Esau would be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Though you dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that says in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Esau had a ridge of vanity, of pride, and he was not going to give in to Jacob, but he would fight Jacob. And he would fight all Israel throughout history and live by the sword. And, of course, Christ said that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Who shall bring me to the ground? Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, thence will I bring you down, says the Eternal. So Esau was going to put himself in the position to try to rule over Jacob. And the way they have done it is through the banking system, the international monetary system, and those people who are Edomites, the Rothschilds, meaning Red Shield, or of Esau and Edom, and all their henchmen in the financial world today, are quickly bringing about the destruction of the economy of America, of Britain, and of the other tribes of Israel. And they are breaking the yoke the power, the pride of this country and of Great Britain. They are in the process today of crashing our economy on purpose because they are the sons of Esau. And they are there to break the yoke from off their neck. They are part and parcel with the New World Order and the movement to break the stranglehold 
that Ephraim has over the world today. That is what we see in the news and what we see going on. Why would our leaders act at cross-purposes with our best interests to do the things they are doing if they were not doing it deliberately? Greenspan set up the housing bubble with easy credit on purpose. It is now being crashed on purpose. I have no doubt he is an Edomite Jew, a man who says he is a Jew and is not. And Helicopter Ben is right in there with him, who is over the Federal Reserve today. These prophecies are coming about just as God, or as Isaac, said they would to Jacob and to Esau. So you can set your nest among the stars. You can set yourself on the highest places in the governments of the earth. And those are Edomite Jews who are at the heads of many, many governments, are very high in the governments of various nations around the world today. They have a purpose. That is to take over Jacob's position, as God said it would be. So if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen until they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Esau is there to take every last grape from Jacob. Usually thieves leave some. They said Jacob wanted, I mean Esau wants it all. He was that bitter. And that genetic pattern has been passed down to his children. And they're hidden things. They're not things that people normally see. But they have done this by deception, by conspiracy, behind the scenes, taking things apart, setting us up for the crash that is occurring, coming down around our ears today as we live. All the men of your confederacy, confederacy is a synonym of conspiracy, call it what you will, have brought you even to the border. The men that were at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you, and they that eat your bread have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in him. So Esau has been seeking his selfish purpose trying to destroy and to take over where Israel has been, and yet they are going to be betrayed as well. Shall I not in that day, and that's referring to the future, says the Eternal, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau. You'll break the yoke of Jacob, but you will also yourselves be betrayed and brought down. Your mighty men, O Teman, or Ottomans, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. You see, it may not have worked out with men the way God would have caused it to be worked out, with the lying, the chicanery, the deception that Jacob used. But Esau should have recognized that from the beginning, from birth, 
he had appointed Jacob to be the leader. And it would have worked out that way even without all the lying and deception. He should have accepted it and realized, I am not going to be the firstborn. <laughs> he couldn't do it. <clears throat> Vengeance is God's, not Esau's. For your violence against your brother Jacob, <clears throat> he'll be cut off. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. You conspired against Israel, against Jerusalem. They have throughout history, and I do believe it was Edomites, by the name of Raider and Tekach, who did the very same thing to Jerusalem, the church, here in the end time. <clears throat> These prophecies are being fulfilled in several different ways. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. They spoke proudly in the church. We're going a new and better way, right back to Protestantism. And they'll do it over physical Jacob, Israel today, when they break that yoke. You should not have entered in the gate of my people in, that, in the day of their calamity. You should have kept your hands off their substance in the day of their calamity. They're going to rape us as a nation financially, and they're doing it now. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Satan is going to use these people to try to destroy his church and cut off all the remnant of Jacob. God will not allow it, but they're going to try it. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. So he gives you the, the timing here, that this isn't just an ancient historical story, but it is those events leading to the day of the Lord. The end-time church and end-time physical Israel as well. Verse 16, For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all your heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. They'll eat, they'll drink, they'll disappear. But, now this is encouraging, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. When it's all said and done, those who go to Mount Zion, and we know where that is, there will be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. It's the only place on earth that there will be holiness. All the faithful remnant of God will come there and will live in a holy manner. We heard it in the sermonette today. It is a way of life. It's not just come to church on Sabbath, but we live God's way of life throughout the week. We come to review it, to talk about it on the Sabbath, but the other six days we have to live it. So holiness will be there. The only place on earth that there will be holiness. Any others who have been called out will be in the tribulation, and they will probably all, or nearly all, die there. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Well, now, what possessions have we been talking about here? The great wealth of the earth. Now, God has told us that 
an unconverted man in the end time will be given the treasures of darkness and the rich treasures that have been hidden. And they will be for God's own true people. We find that here in the story of Esau as well. These Edomites have been high in the United States, the Israeli government, the British government, high in the world of finance, and they have been the wealthy ones. But God is going to give his holy people, who will dwell in Zion, all the wealth, spiritual holiness, and the physical wealth. He's not going to give us their spiritual blessings, is he? They don't have any. So if we have holiness, it comes from God. If we have their wealth, that has to be speaking of physical wealth because they have no spiritual wealth. Okay? Does that make sense? You can only receive what they have. And they don't have any spiritual blessing. So it has to be speaking of physical blessing. They have had the riches. They've been in control of the finances. And they are quickly destroying our economy and taking away the physical blessings of Israel. But if we will obey God and have holiness, God will protect us from the time of distress, and he will give us their physical blessings as well. The gold and the silver is God's. Right in the middle of where it talks about building the temple in a Haggai 2, it says the silver and the gold are mine. And he tells us here, and in Isaiah 44 and 45, he will give it to his people. God's true, faithful, holy people are going to be the wealthiest people on earth, both physically and spiritually. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Eternal has spoken it. Do you think that God is going to give power to the church? He says, I'll make you a fine threshing instrument, both in Micah 4 and I think it's Isaiah 41, I think it's 41. A fine threshing instrument. What does a threshing instrument do? It threshes the grain out of the field, weeds it out. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even the Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sephard, shall possess the cities of the south. So if this is the area of the promised land and Jerusalem and Zion are near here, God is going to give this area to his people. And Savior shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the eternals. God is going to take control. He's going to give it to his people, and it will be that way forevermore and through the kingdom of God that Christ will come back and set up on the earth. So it's just before the day of the Lord that this thing starts happening. 
and then it moves on over into the time when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, and it'll be in the original place that it was. So Obadiah lays out in more detail what Isaac told Esau back here in Genesis 27. He knew it was going to be an uphill battle, but he was promised that someday you'll break the yoke of Jacob. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. He knew his dad would die probably within days. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. So he had the heart of a murderer. A deep hate. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau, concerning you, does comfort himself, purposing to kill you. That's the only comfort Esau could find, was I'm going to kill that person. I cleaned that one up considerably. <clears throat> now therefore, my son, obey my voice, and arise. Flee you to Laban, my brother, to Haran. And tarry with him a few days till your brother's fury turn away. Now, she didn't realize how deep this hatred went, that it would never go away. And it would be there even up until the time of the day of the Lord. But not just Esau, but those who would proceed from him. So your brother's anger turn away, and he forget that which you have done to him. Yeah, he's going to forget that. Lost my birthright, right? Lost my blessing. A few days, I don't think he was going to forget that. Then I will send and fetch you from there. I mean, as proof, what is it like when families get together on Thanksgiving and Christmas and so on? All the old skeletons come out of the closet, and so often it degenerates into a fight. As one person said, the fight starts at Thanksgiving and homicide happens at Christmas. That's the day that more homicides occur than any other, strangely enough. But I guess it's not so strange when you understand. But all I'm saying is these family feuds and the wrongs that were done back even when people were children still simmer. They're underneath the surface, and then when the family gets together, so often all those things come out. So they're never forgotten. They're just sort of buried, and they get resurrected periodically. This one was one that wouldn't go away either. So she sent him away, saying, Wait till his anger dissipates, and he forget that which you've done to him. Then I will send and fetch you from there. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? She knew she had lost Esau. She had always favored Jacob. But when Esau knew how complicit his very own mother was in this, she knew that she would never, ever be close to Esau again. But that hatred would always be there. It must have hurt her pretty deeply to know what she had done to her son and know that it was all over. Never come back. He would hate her just like he hated Jacob. 
So she was deprived of him emotionally, and she knew that if Jacob was killed, then she would be deprived of him physically. Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? And she understood that God wanted to keep Israel separate from the other nations because he had promised the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be a nation. And if they started mingling the races at that point, that would be destroyed. So she was very worried about whom Jacob would marry. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. So Rebekah obviously talked to Isaac and said, Would you please tell Jacob? I've loved him, he's been my favorite, but apparently he wasn't listening to his mother too well at this point. So she must have gone to Isaac and said, You tell him. So he told him not to take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Well, now Canaan was still uh, possessed by Gentile peoples. It had not become Israel yet. I mean, the Israel we know, not that one in the Middle East. So she said, uh, he said, Arise, go to Ben Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take you a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So they were still marrying fairly closely back then to keep the family line together because they understood God would bless through that line. And God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a multitude of people. He knew the promises to Abraham, to himself, and it was passing them along to Jacob and saying, Now you understand the heritage, you understand the promises that God made, you live up to it. And give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you, that you may inherit the land wherein you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. It was still ruled over by Gentiles, but that's where Abraham was when God told him, look north, south, east, and west, and this will be your land. So Isaac went away from, sent away Jacob, and he went to Padan Aram, unto Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And when Jacob, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take him away from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, You shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Esau's thinking, saying, They want to be sure Jacob marries in the family, doesn't go outside. And he also observed that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau to Ishmael and took it to the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. So he said, I know Isaac wants me to marry the same way he told Jacob to marry, but he said, I'm not going to do it. I will marry into Ishmael, into the Arab world, on purpose to frustrate my parents. Absolute, total, utter rebellion. 
rebellion is as witchcraft in God's definition. <coughs> now, we need to see this on several levels. Whether we are rebelling against God our Father in heaven, which is the ultimate rebellion by doing things our way, or whether we're rebelling against Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the way of life that God instructed them to live and denying our fathers, or whether we're rebelling against our physical fathers today. All three levels are wrong and evil and are a wrong attitude and wrong approach. God makes a big deal of it. And he says, if this is not corrected, I will destroy all people on earth. So the ultimate rebellion is against God. And if there is not a faithful, holy people at the end who will look to him as our Father, he is going to destroy the entire earth. Now does that sink in to us how important we are to the plan of God? Not just because we are we because God could have called any number of people out of the world. Why he had mercy on you and me, I do not know. Partly because we were weak in base and that if we learn to honor our Father in heaven by becoming strong and faithful and true instead of weak in base, that it is to his glory. So he didn't call us because we were great better than anyone else. He called us because we weren't. And he said, become something that you are not. Don't be conformed to this world, but be you transformed to become like God. And in that sense, the fate of the world is in our hands. God has said, if there is not a faithful people who will turn to their father in heaven and their father, fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will destroy the earth with the curse. Total annihilation. So God is depending on us, brethren. He's called out only so many here in the end time. Most of them were called under Herbert Armstrong. They're the only ones that understand, really, the truth of God. And out of those, he is going to select a 10% faithful remnant who will truly turn to God with their whole heart and turn to live like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came to learn to live. Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. He didn't start out that way. I started out as Daryl, and I'm hopefully going to be given a new name that will reflect the character that I come to have. You started out as Bill or Jim or Mary or whatever, and you're going to have a new name that reflects what you become. To those who are in the kingdom of God, he will give them a new name. It's not where we started, it's where we end up. Jacob didn't start out so hot, did he? 
He's a liar. He was a thief. Deceitful. Deceptive. But he changed. We started out whatever we were. But it only matters that we change. So, God is looking for that faithful 10%. Will we be among them? That's the question that remains. I think we've been given information, we've been given knowledge, that it should help ensure that we can be a part of those who are delivered, a part of those who will be faithful to God, and those to whom God will look and say, I saved the world for their sake. Now, he thinks that way, doesn't he? Yes, I'll save Sodom and Gomorrah for 50. Yes, I'll do it for 45, 40, 30, 25, 10. I'll do it for that many. There weren't that many. So Sodom and Gomorrah perished. Now, he's looking for a 10% faithful people out of the ones he called in this end time. That's how many he needs. I'd say that somewhere in the seven to twelve to fifteen thousand range of people and numbers, based on how many he called. It's not very many, is it? Now God is placing on our shoulders the weight and the responsibility of being what we ought to be, otherwise he is going to destroy mankind off the face of the earth. And don't think he won't do it. He did it in Noah's day and saved only eight souls, and that because of the righteousness of only one. He had a plan in mind, and he found one righteous man and saved the population of the earth because of it. Now, come down to Moses, and God said he would destroy Israel, except that Moses stood up for them. They were all murmuring, pitching, griping, complaining, and moaning. And if Moses had not stood up for them, he would have wiped them all out right there. It says so very clearly. Repeats it in Psalm 106. 105 and 106, one of those two. We just sang it. It reminded me of that psalm. For the sake of one, his son Christ, he spared the world. Now this time, he says, I need my faithful remnant or I'll destroy it again. That puts a lot of weight on us, doesn't it? Let's think about it. That's the way God thinks. He'll save this world, for you and me, it will be what we ought to be. We're right back the same spot that other people have been. God is looking for a few people who will not rebel against it. He said, I will send someone at the end 
that will cause us to turn to God with our whole heart. Otherwise, I will destroy them all. End of the book of Malachi. See why God hated Esau? It says in Malachi 1 that he actually hated Esau. It says in Hebrews 12 that Esau simply would not repent, though he sought it bitterly and with tears. He just could not get over his rebellion against his father and against God and against his brother. Just would not repent of that attitude. Sometimes it's just almost impossible to change, isn't it? Once you go so far and become so bitter, you just can't get past it. No matter how hard you try, you can't get past it. Herbert Armstrong always said that bitterness is probably the hardest thing to ever overcome. Once we let a root of bitterness start, I think he was right. Because once that root of bitterness got in Esau, it grew into a tree, and there's no way he could get it out. Don't ever let yourself get bitter. If we experience that, I have seen, seen so people so bitter against Herbert Armstrong, against Ted Armstrong, against leaders we've had, so bitter they couldn't get past it. <clears throat> it may not be in the kingdom of God. God says he will give his end-time people a heart of flesh, not of stone, where we can feel and have the emotions, the right kind of emotions that we need toward God, toward his people, toward each other, and toward ourselves even. So then went, verse 9, Esau to Ishmael, took those wives, <laughs> verse 10, and Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place, and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place, and put them for his pillows, and lay down in that place to sleep. I don't think of rocks as pillows, really. Uh, but uh, there have been times when I've been out where I would literally get a pillow, I mean a, a rock, to put under my head to be more comfortable, prop the head up a little bit. Even though it was hard, it was more comfortable than laying with your head clear back. So he had to stay there that night. So he took stones, placed to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. So from where he lay, the dream was of a ladder going right up into the heavens. Now, I've been told that there, the heavens means heaved up places, and in a geological sense, that is probably true. But if Jacob was laying in those heaped up places of geology that we think may be the real Jerusalem, this was a different heaven it was going up to, wasn't it? This had to be the heaven above, not just the heaved up place on the earth that God says is a holy or heavenly place. It only makes sense that where God would set up his headquarters would be a lifted up place. Mount Zion is lifted up with the joy of the whole land, it says in the Psalms. So God is not going to put his headquarters in Death Valley or around the Dead Sea, <laughs> below sea level. 
He's going to put it in a lifted up place. But that is only symbolic of the holiness of the lifted up place in the heavens where God has his throne in the sides of the north. So indeed, <clears throat> Jacob may have been laying in a heaved up place representative of God's headquarters on the earth and which will also be his headquarters when he and his son come back to this earth to dwell with men. So, the angels were coming up and down this ladder in his dream and behold, verse 13, the eternal stood above it. So he stood at the top of the ladder, ladder up in heaven and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon you lie, to you will I give it, and to your seed. It says this over and over and over again, doesn't it? And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. Every direction from where you are lying is the land I'm going to give to your seed. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again I say, where is the beautiful, uh, productive land that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and now confirms to Jacob? In what nation has the whole earth been blessed to be allied with or to? Behold, I am with you, and will keep you in all places where you go, and will bring you again to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. <clears throat> so he had been sent away, and on his way, to find a wife among his own people, God gave him this dream before he ever got out of the land of Canaan. He said, this is the land I'm going to give you, north, south, east, and west. And in this land, you'll be blessed. I look around today, and there is no land that fits that description but this one that we live in today. No other fits. Now, is this true, or is it not true? Am I wrong? I mean, you know, you've got minds. Think about it. This is wrong. Show me a land that has the blessings of heaven and earth and that influences the whole world and that will be blessed in it or cursed by it. Do you think of a nation that fits that description more than America? Anybody got a nation? I don't see any hands. <laughs> you know, that, that is so apparent, so obvious, that this has to be that land. Now, the only other land that we could try to make fit would be that which the world recognizes as Israel and Jerusalem today, right? Are all nations blessed by that little tiny land of Israel over there? Is it a verdant, productive land? Can you go north, south, east, and west of it? and see a productive land that is the fatness of the earth. It's just not there. It's tiny. It's mostly desert. 
It's mostly ugly and very unproductive, except for some irrigation, which they are now doing. But it doesn't fit this description, no way, no how. <clears throat> anyway, verse 16, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Now the dream had been of where he was laying with a direct ladder to heaven and God himself standing there in the dream telling him north, south, east, and west of where you slept tonight is the promised land. So when he woke up, the sun came up, he looked around and said, the Lord must be in this place. It has to be. It can't be in the other way. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. I didn't know I was really treading on holy ground. But it came to him because of the dream. Now, he knew of Abraham. He knew of his father Isaac. He knew the stories. But he didn't really get it apparently, until now. We knew the story of the Seventh-day Church of God, Duggar and Dodd. We knew of Herbert Armstrong. We knew of the true Church of God at the end time. But that all went away, didn't it? So we knew the history. We knew kind of what had to be. But now we're involved in something that God is doing, and now maybe we begin to suddenly, personally get it, because we didn't really get it before. So he knew the story, but until he personally was involved by God, he didn't really realize the depth, the breadth of what had been promised. And suddenly it became very, very real to him. And Jacob, Jacob rose up. Oh, wait a minute. <clears throat> Verse 17. And he was afraid. This must be the place of God. God is here. And he feared God. So he was scared. He was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. If this is the place God has chosen, it must be a dreadful place. An important place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Where was Christ born? Right near Jerusalem. Where did he preach? Mostly Jerusalem. It is the place of God. And we've seen enough information now to indicate to us but that simply is not the promised land. That is not where Jacob is. It is where a lot of Edomite Jews are who are not true Jews, with a sprinkling of a few true Jews. But Ephraim became the firstborn, not Judah. And we live in the land of Ephraim today. And that is where the blessings of the firstborn came. So the land we walk is the land of promise. It is the land of God, and it is the gate of heaven. And I think now 
both from a geological <coughs> type and in reality of the throne of God that will come down. Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it, meaning setting it aside, sanctifying it to God. And he called the name of that place Bethel, that is, the house of God. But the name of that city was called Lutz at the first, or Luz at the first. So he changed the name of it and called it Bethel, the house of God. Now we'll find in Israel's history later on among the kings that they went to keep the feast at Bethel or Bethel. El meaning God and Beth meaning house, house of God. So they went up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. And this is was at the site of the original Jerusalem. Had to have been. And Jacob bowed around, and saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Now he was going on a journey to find a wife, and he knew he would come back to this area. This is the area God had told him now is going to be your land, your promised land, where you are to live. That will be your inheritance. So I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you shall give me, I will surely give you the tenth to you. <clears throat> There's a lot said in these few verses. This is the conversion, if you will, of Jacob. It's a time when the God of his grandfather Abraham, of his father Isaac, and now of he himself became his personal God. It was a time when he began to commit himself truly to God. You see, you can go up in the church, but at some point it has to become personal. At some point you have to recognize the God of heaven and earth as your God, and that you will begin to obey him and be deeply committed to him. It is equivalent to our spiritual conversion and baptism is what it's equivalent to. It's when he woke up to who God really was and it became personal to him. <clears throat> and he knew that there were obligations that went with that. He knew that his father had tithed. He knew that Abraham had tithed. So one of the keys to his conversion was that he said, I will begin to tithe. Now, does that make Malachi 3 come to have more meaning to you and to me? Because that is one of the key issues that God is concerned about in this day and age. When he was upset with the ministry, when he was upset with the people in his church, they said, how have we despised you? He said, in tithes and in offerings, both. Tithes and offerings are separate. Tithe is something God requires of us. Offering is something that comes of our own free will. But he says, give them as well, so that our free will should be to give 
an offering in addition to the tithe which is commanded. What is important to people on this earth? Wealth. Now sex may be ahead of wealth, but the way men look at it, wealth gives you more access to sex. That's kind of the bottom line in society. So his conversion had a monetary meaning to him. That is why God hit our pocketbooks in Malachi 3 as a church, as a people. It's because he knows that our wallet is where we live. That is most important to most people. So it wasn't by chance that God chose that particular doctrine to bring out in Malachi 3. He knows that where our treasure is, our heart is also. And Christ said that in the Sermon on the Mount. We reviewed that recently. Where our heart is, there will our treasure be. It is a key doctrine. An absolute key fundamental doctrine. Because God is after our heart. And if our human heart withholds from God that which he says he is monetarily, he knows our heart is not with him. It is an absolute equation. And Christ put it in words that simply cannot be avoided or denied. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm not saying this to bring more money to the church. Everyone here today, as far as I know, if they are gainfully employed and receiving um, income or increase or tithing. And those of you who are on Social Security or pension may have already tithed, so me beating this drum is not going to increase the income, okay? I'm not beating it to increase the income. I don't do that. I'm doing it because God is after your heart. And when, God, when Jacob gave his heart to the Lord, to use a Protestant expression, that was one of, it was the, a key promise. As a fact, it was the only promise here he made to God, wasn't it? He bowed a vow. If you'll take care of me and bring me back and do those things that are needed, I am committing myself to you and I'll give you a tenth of everything you give me. That was at the very core of his repentance and of his commitment to God. So do not think for a moment that tithing is not a major doctrine. It plays a major role in determining by God where our heart is. Absolute key doctrine. That's why he used it in Malachi 3 here at the end time. Because I'm going to know where your heart is based on where your wealth goes, where your treasure is. And that's what Jacob used. <clears throat> well, that's a good place to break. We're almost out of time. 
but it gives us a key insight into the heart and mind of Jacob, whose name would, after his conversion, be changed to Israel. Uh, a new name for a new man, who was now devoting his life to God, as we should be.